0: countries that suffer every single day, that their faith every single day may lead them to a beheading or to a death or to imprisonment. But here's how our American ideology speaks to itself. I still remember seeing an interview on 60 Minutes. They were interviewing a very prominent preacher in America, one of the largest churches that propagates what we call health and wealth. And we all do that to a certain level but I still remember the question. The interviewer asked this preacher about the persecuted Christians who were poor, who were suffering, who didn't have all this wealth, just bringing on them because they supposedly were followers of Jesus. Here's what the preacher said. I don't know about them. I just know what works for me. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to think that somehow my Christianity is better than somebody else's because I happen to have more money in the bank account or I don't have to go to the doctors often or I don't have situations and circumstances and struggles. According to Genesis 3, we understand this. It's part of our theology. We live in a world that is broken and fallen, and it's broken and fallen on three levels. The first level is the world. We call that often natural disasters. Volcano in Hawaii is an example of that. Tornadoes is another. And you know, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5. Listen, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know what that means? That means if you're living in a town where a tornado goes through, It tears up your neighborhood. It doesn't mean your neighbor's house gets torn apart because he doesn't go to church. And you, because you go to church, your house stands. And in addition to that, your daughter gets a pony. It means if a tornado goes through, it's going to rip apart those who follow Jesus and those who don't. I mean, that's part of the fallen nature of this world. Second level brokenness is what other people do to us. They steal, they cheat, they inflict pain. Sometimes they mean to; other times, it's simply because the aftermath of their choices. And of course, the third level is what we are—we ourselves do to us. This past week, with another shooting in Texas, is a great example of those two things: one, where the sin of one person was imposed upon many people in a very tragic situation. So the psalmist is talking about this fallenness and brokenness. And here's the key thought. Okay, if you're taking notes, write this down. Everything else builds upon this thought. He says, our hope in this life is tied to our love. And I put in parentheses, submission. We don't always associate those two words, but you start realizing the psalmist saying, listen, I listen to your precepts. I follow your testimonies. I I love your law. He's submitting to the authority of God. Why? Because he loves God. So in these two sections of 16 verses, he talks about his hope. That even though external things are crushing him and bearing down and not getting better, he says, my hope lies in this life because I love my God. Look at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant. In which you have made me hope. The word remember is a key theological concept. It's found in Deuteronomy 15 times. He tells us to remember. He also tells us 14 times not to forget. But here's the idea the word remember in Hebrew carries two pieces to it one is to pay attention. So we focus, we listen, we pay attention. The other half of the word means to work on behalf of what we focus and give our attention to. So it's just not the idea that, oh, yeah, I remember that. No, it's I'm choosing to remember to focus, and I'm lining up my life with that which I'm focusing on. One of the things that we do here every month is we have communion. Communion. And we focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We pay attention to him. But if we remember, it means also we work on behalf of his cause. We don't only remember that he came, died, and rose again. We align our life up with the cause on why he came, died, and rose again. In other words, we remember why we exist. We're called the body of Christ. For those that were here yesterday for the ladies brunch, you heard that why. Kelly Baldwin shared her story, her journey through suffering, through the valley, of the shadow of death, but also what Christ has done in her life and through her life. See, If we're going to remember, we remember we're called to be Jesus. We are called to serve Jesus. This facility that you now sit in was designed to serve Jesus. Now look around. Go ahead. Just kind of look around. You can wave to somebody if you want. If you're in the balcony, yeah, James is waving over there. I see that. I see that hand, come down. (laughs) Uh, Now, one of the things you probably notice, or at least I notice, because I stand up here and I see the whole picture, I notice empty seats. Now, what goes through your mind sitting in a building called to serve Jesus when you see an empty seat? Now, some of you have been at GBC for a very long time. I know when you think about those empty seats, you probably think about those who used to sit in those seats. Bob Barth introduces me to a lot of people when we're out and about. And after he introduces me and they go away, he says, oh, they used to go to GBC. And I started thinking, everybody in Lancaster County used to go to GBC. (laughs) And you know, when you see those empty seats and you think about them, you miss them. But here's how I think. You know, other believers... And, you know, Bev and I have come and gone in churches and we got to know a lot of different people and we miss a lot of people. You know, we have friends in Canada that we miss. But here's one thing I know according to our theology. Those people we will have all eternity to visit. Amen? And this life is so minuscule in time compared to all of eternity. And the things that divide us here in this earth will not divide us in heaven. Amen? (laughs) Amen? Is there a hint there that maybe we shouldn't let things here divide us like we do if they're not going to divide us in heaven? Just a a hint. But what I see, and I think what Christ sees, is the not yets. You know who the not yets are? They're people sitting at home or shopping at Park City or taking a walk in Longs Park. Remember the story Jesus told he had 99 sheep he was taking care of. Gets him back in the pen, starts counting, and realizes, actually, he had 100, and he realizes there's one lost. What does he do? He leaves the 99, he goes after the one. The one who's lost. So, the question I ask myself, I'm going to ask you this morning, is when we remember, when we start remembering Christ, when we line our life up with his death, his resurrection, When we realize we're the body of Christ, we're the bride of Jesus. How do we leverage our resources? Now, resources are the people sitting around you. It's their gifts, their talents, their passions, their time, their possessions, their money. It's all those things. But how do we leverage our resources in Christ so that the empty seats become full? And full of the not yets. Every once in a while in your bulletin, you see something called a town hall meeting. We're gonna be having one on June 3rd. Starts at 4 o'clock. You say, why four o'clock? Because we eat first. <laughs> and we'll have food there for you. We're gonna hear about the recent trip to Broken Arrow where some of our people went out. We're gonna to pray together. But we're gonna talk about this whole going out and finding the one who is lost and the implications of that. So I invite you. And you say, who can come? Anybody. This is your first week and that interests you? Come. It's on June 3rd. If I have the date right, I hope I do. But you know, we are called. We are called to be Christ's bride. And we should offer hope for a broken world. And we must not exchange the glory of God for the lives of this world. We cannot do that. Now, human nature, when you think about the word remember... Have you ever noticed that we forget those things we're to remember, and we remember those things that we're to forget? It's just kind of backwards in terms of the human nature. And again, understand what this means, because I think sometimes we want to take things out of our minds. No, Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter three. He says, "Brothers." I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, I'm still in this journey. I'm still pushing. And he calls himself chief among sinners. He is still plugging out in this broken, fallen world. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, leaning into what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. He remembers. He focuses. He lines his life up with that. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So he says, if you want to be grown up in Christ, you're going to think this way. And if anything, if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. It's kind of a nice way of saying, listen, someday he's going to come knocking. So the spirit's going to whisper in your ear, say, listen, it's time to grow up. But here's what this means. It means that we don't let the past define us. Rather, we keep primary in our sight, Christ. That's what it means to remember. And keeping primary in our sight, Christ, that allows us to lean into the present and lean into the future. And this leaning in gives us hope. And so we remember. And we remember the stories of God at work. And it's not that we don't remember the evil. George Saniano says this, he who does not remember the past is condemned to repeat it. Think about the Jewish Holocaust. Evil of a magnitude that we cannot even begin to understand it. Should we forget that? Absolutely not. I was reading this past week. It's a study in Lamentations, and the author was struggling with the complicity of the rise of the Nazi Party and the Church of Germany. He posted pictures of pastors doing the Heil Hitler salute right alongside of SS officials. And he goes, I struggle with that. So it's not that we forget that. We got to remember what evil does. We had Mission Mid-Atlantic meeting here this past week. It's the conservative Baptists, our association that we gather once a year. And the speaker was part of a church that was celebrating their 200th year anniversary. I mean, that's significant. But he goes, you know, he says, we struggle with something. He's our founding pastor, owned 20 slaves. He goes, so how do we celebrate this church, but not celebrate something that's so tragic and so evil? There are certain things we should not forget, but those things do not define us. Rather, we remember our incredible God. Rather, we remember his vision. That defines us. And the psalmist says, listen, when I remember the right things, two things happen. Number one, I pay attention. And number two, I align my life and work on behalf of those things. Here's what happens if we remember correctly. Look at verse 50. He goes, this is my comfort in my affliction. That your promise gives me life. The word comfort here is the idea of strength. So he says, listen, if I remember correctly, if I keep the vision of God before me, if I line my life up, that gives me strength. Strength to walk through and into my affliction. And then he says, God's promises, they revive me. That's what the word means, give me life. It revives me. And just listen how this works. Look at verse 51 through verse 56. We just see this interplay going back and forth between remembering and comfort." The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. So here's this hostility. He doesn't focus upon that. He turns to the law of God. When I think of your rules of old, I take comfort. They give me strength, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me. Whatever's happening in his life, he gets angry. And it's seizing him. It's seizing his mind, his heart, his emotions. Because of the wicked who forsake your law. Then he switches back. Your statutes have been my song. He starts singing the law and the words of God. Whenever he's so angry at what's going on, he focuses upon who God is. In the house of my sojourning, I remember your name in the night. O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, and I've kept your precepts. So horrible, evil, he gets angry. But when he focuses and remembers the right thing, what happens? He sees the blessings of God. And so he submits because he loves God. Let me dispel a pervasive myth in our culture. We don't often say this, but we live this way. If we give our lives over to Jesus, everything will go like we want it to go. We act that way. You hear people talk. When something bad happens, they go, What what did I do wrong? Lord, you know, I've been going to church and I've been praying and I've been studying your Bible. You know, why is this happening? And in our culture, because everything is so fast, we like quick answers and quick solutions. We don't want the long, hard journey of day in and day out until we see Christ face to face. I've been in a variety of settings. I hear people say things like, well, you know, just pray this prayer. Everything will be okay. Pray the sinner's prayer. You're good. And they walk away. Other settings... I've seen people trying to cast out demons from everyone and anything that moves. Now hear what I'm saying. I'm not invalidating prayer, nor am I suggesting there is no spiritual powers at work. See, our problem with suffering is we don't want the yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We like, for I am with you, <laughs> and my rod and my staff, they comfort you. We just want to forget about it. The valley of the shadow of death. And success and suffering do not fit into our thinking. We love the emotional highs, we love the hype, we love the celebration, we despise the emotional lows. We do we don't know how to celebrate the suffering. We're too bound by our definitions of fairness. We fail to understand the beauty and the fullness of grace. And there's some stories we don't like in Scripture. We do not like Job. And we don't like his story of suffering. It doesn't fit into how we think. Because his suffering was not a result of his sin. And we know that. And we know that he loses everything. And we have these words in Job chapter 2. Just listen to the, the, the judgment bringing upon him. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? nice way of saying you still hold fast to God curse God and die God's not giving you what God promised to give you but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil we don't like that question we like the first part we don't like the second part but listen to the last phrase In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Incredible evil, incredible suffering. He remembered, he aligned his life with remembering who God was. If you read the rest of the book, his friends passed on their theology. It was Job, you had to do something. Because look at us, we're not suffering. So confess the sin, get over it, and God will restore you. God doesn't want you to suffer. That's what they said. What troubles us even more when you read the book, when God finally shows up and enters the conversation, he never tells Job why. What he says is, hey, look at me. Am I the God of? And he starts going down through creation and the mountains, and he just starts scribing who he is. And he does restore Job. Of course, we're always caught up in the restoration thing here and not the one we get for all eternity. And the one that we get for all eternity should be the one we get excited about. So here's what this means. When you talk about the gospel, it means you get God. And the psalmist says, he is enough. The psalmist is saying, and let me kind of do a loose translation here. He says, listen, God, I am not good enough to navigate this world. In fact, I'm ready to give up. Unless you step in, unless you work, what you do incredibly well, I can't handle this. And see, the gospel means that God wounds us like a surgeon wounds with a knife. He cuts away those things that hurt and kill us. But look what the psalmist says, and he continues. Look at verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. The word portion here literally means God is enough. Think about this. You go to a restaurant and you know some restaurants have large portions and you have some restaurants that have little portions. It seems like to me you go to the real expensive restaurants and little portions come out. You go to some of the other restaurants, it's like, wow, this is way too much food. This is the idea. When he remembers and he aligns his life, he says, listen, man, you are way more than enough. When I look at my enemies, I look at the suffering. And when I remember who you are, God of everything, when I realize that you're the God of justice and mercy. And, you know, you're going to take care of it, but it's going to be your timing. And when I fix my attention on my God, when I life when I line my life with him, there is this understanding both in our heads and our hearts that he is enough. He says the Lord is my portion. He is enough. Verse 58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. See, the psalmist realizes when he stands in the presence of God, yes, there's evil out there, but there's also Sin here, that he needs grace. He needs a transformation in his heart. Verse 59 When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. If I get caught up and just remember my ways, he says, I'm going to lose. He's like, I have to intentionally, even though I'm, I'm thinking about this evil, even thinking about difficult situations, I have to intentionally turn my feet to your stories. In verse 60, I hasten. Do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Midnight, how many people here like someone to knock on your door at midnight and ring the doorbell? You're saying you're asleep. Go away. I'm sleeping. I'm tired. What are you doing? Of course, today we don't ring the doorbell. We just text somebody at 1 a.m., right? You're like, oh, I can't believe I left that on. Hebrew phrase simply means God's always available. You can knock at midnight. He is there. And he listens. And he enters into a fellowship with you. In verse 63, I'm a companion of all those who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Do you see what he does in verse 63? This is critical. He invites other people into his story. I'm a companion of all Who fear you. Now, human nature, when things are not going the way we like, what do we do? We hide. We run. When we go do something we know we shouldn't do, we just kind of go off somewhere and we get away from people. I cannot tell you how many times Christians who are suffering in their marriage, who have difficulty with a child, who have a hidden sin that's exposed, that do not invite people into that suffering, they run, they hide. And that's one of the lies of Satan. And the psalmist is saying, yes, God, I need to remember you, but I also need to remember your people. Because in this life, I need people around me that will hold me accountable, that will help me through this suffering. Now, if we're honest, I think the reason sometimes we don't invite people into that suffering is because, let's face it, church people sometimes react they gossip, they condemn, they judge. They start repeating things they shouldn't repeat and they always get it wrong. Tragedy is that we often allow a few people to keep us away from the many. So let me give you some advice. If somebody lets you into their story, don't press them for details that you think you need to know. Just listen. They'll share what they feel they can share at that time. Empathize. Don't sit there and say, how could you do that? If you think that, just shut up. <laughs> Empathize. You know, walk with them. As the psalmist said, listen, I need grace. Understand that whoever comes to you and shares their story, they are a sinner walking with another sinner. In case you didn't know, that's you. <laughs> And then point them to Jesus. Don't point them to your great intellect and your ability. Just sit at the feet of Jesus. I guess what I'm saying is keep your advice to a minimum. Keep your presence to a maximum. Now, if you're the one telling the story, let me give you some advice. Find a select few you can trust. Now, let me tell you about the people you can trust because your human nature is going to say, I'm going to find people who agree with me. No, that's not who you trust. (laughs) You need to find people who will hold you accountable and point you to Jesus. You need to find people who will pray with you. Far too often we find people who are just like ourselves and we find comfort in agreement, not in grace. And thirdly, don't share unnecessary details. By that I mean... Stick to the first person. So often we say, well, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and and -and and -and so-and-so. No, say, listen, you know what? Right now, here's what I did. Here's where I messed up. Here's what I need. Here's where I didn't remember well. Here's where I didn't align my life with Christ. Keep it to the first person. See, we get to choose how we're going to live. We can live in our story. Or we can live in God's story. God's story is a grand story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And he invites us into this story. And there is so much God has in store. And there can be this complete honesty before him. And God's grace provides us the freedom to recognize we fall short of the glory of God. Yet, we know that God's glory is displayed in our weakness. I'm going to close with a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. I keep this before me all the time. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing in closing. But look what he describes here. And I love what Paul says. But we have this treasure. Who's the treasure? It's Christ. In jars of clay. Now, what you don't understand about jars of clay here, he's talking about cracked jars. Imperfect jars. Okay? So, he's very nicely saying that we're all crackpots. We have this treasure, Christ, in jars of clay, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See what happens is, is that the light of Christ shines out through those imperfections, and Christ say, and people say, "What's what's that light I see?" And we invite them into our hearts. Then He says, "This we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair." persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Amen. Let's stand and sing praises to this wonderful God.